as you all know, we've been talking about our mission statement. We started about two weeks ago, and I shared with you the kind of the, the, the retooled or rearticulated mission statement of the church, and, and we talked some about our, our values. I don't know if you recall, but we talked about community back in November, and so last week we took some time to talk a little bit about communion. Hopefully, we express that that is beyond just the act of, of the ritual or the—, or the, or the, um, the um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Sacrament of communion. It, it, it's representative of a larger vision of our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, which is to walk in one's conscious awareness of our union with God that has been restored and reconciled through the work of Christ so that we are living from an awareness of Christ within the hope of glory. And then this morning, I want to talk about our value of compassion. Our hope and prayer is that all that we do in some way traces back to one of these three values, either communion, community, or compassion, that they, that, 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 that kind of drives the activity of our community. And oftentimes, it's more than one of those values that we're acting upon whenever we pursue some sort of ministry endeavor. So this morning, I wanted to talk to you about compassion. So I wanted to remind you our vision. Our vision is to be a community so rooted in God's love that we are renewing the understanding and expression of Christianity in our generation. Our mission is to equip people to be true to Christ, to be kind to all people, and to be the body of Christ in our community and beyond. And so, 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 so what I hope that you see in those, uh, one of the commonalities of all three of those values is those values are all relational values. Communion is about our deep connection and relationship with God that then establishes the foundation upon which we pursue friendship and, and relationship with one another. We, we may be very different, different ethnicities, different religious backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, but the umbrella that holds us all together is that we've all heard the call of the Spirit to follow Jesus. And so we are, we, we are following Jesus together in community. And, 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 and the value, of course, of community is about being a presence within our community. In fact, we had a discussion in one of the groups, and, and the thought was that community was a religious word that was, we were talking about within our community. It is not. I mean it in the way it's read. I mean it in the secular sense of the word, the geographical location in which we find ourselves. And so community is twofold. It's the larger community in which we find ourselves, but it's also the organized community of Christ Community Church, whatever we're talking about that. But both of those relationships are, I mean, both of those values are relational, whether it's within the community of one another or it's in the way we posture ourselves to serve our community. We don't want to do it primarily programmatically. We, we want to have good organized programs so that we can be effective, but the primary motive is relationship. And the same is true in our idea of compassion. I do not believe compassion is intended to be a strategy by which we win more converts. I believe compassion is something we pursue as an end of itself because compassion expresses the heart of God in tangible ways. And if someone is ready because of that encounter to take the next step, open up their heart, respond to the calling of the Spirit, by all means, we want to equip them and empower them and be part of that journey. But if that's not where they are, if they're just someone who's wounded and broken and in a place of need and we're there to see it and we can actually tangibly uh, meet it, then that's what we want to be present to do. And all that was necessary is our act of love. We do not have pressure to feel like, well, 
If we give them mercy, but we don't let them know we disagree with them, then we've secretly endorsed all their lifestyle. I think that is foolish thinking, but I want to respect that I understand some people embody that. I'm sure a lot of people think that a lot of things I believe are foolish thinking too. Um, but but I, I, I don't think that that's necessary. I don't see the per, those parameters around compassion in the way that it's manifested in the life of ministry of Jesus and in the early church. And so, so compassion is number one. I know we think of it as something we're doing for other people, but compassion is our opportunity to cooperate with the spirit who is in your soul desperately seeking to get out and to tangibly touch someone else's life. And so compassion is for our own spiritual formation. We become more spiritually attuned. We become more spiritually mature. We become more spiritually discerning to the extent that we practice a lifestyle of compassion. All those benefits I just mentioned, they don't come from talking about compassion. They don't come from coming, getting together in a community group to talk about the biblical concept of compassion. They don't come to us because we read about compassion. They only come to us in a very real way when we start to practice acts of compassion. That is what alters us. That is what changes us. That's what causes, here's the thing. The grace of this Holy Spirit is not theoretical. So we can talk about it all day long and never experience it because the only time we'll experience it is when we step out and begin to act. It is in the act itself that we encounter the power of God, not in our speculation about the acts that we ought to be pursuing. That is not how we encounter the, spirit, the, the, the power of God. It is when we actually act and do. So I cannot think of a better place, even though it's kind of a, fantastic part of scripture. I mean, the visuals in this little story, as well as the potential implications for theology, maybe even some of you will be stirred up because you like thinking about like the end of times kind of scenario, which is kind of addressed a little bit in this passage. There are all kinds of things in this passage, but what I hope to do with it this morning, as we read it, as we think about it, as we talk about it, as we hold it in our minds for just a few minutes this morning, my hope and prayer is that we'll read it for what it says to us about exclusively, particularly about what compassion looks like in the life of followers of Jesus. So it is kind of a scary um, uh, passage. It's in Matthew 25. And if you've grown up in church, it's simply referred to the parable. I think a lot, of, although I'm not sure it is a parable, oftentimes it's referred to as a parable that's sheep and the goats. As I've revealed for the good or the bad, I have still a long-term fan of the great uh, Keith Green, he, he wrote a great song about the sheep and the goats. How many of you guys have ever heard Keith Green's version of Sheep and the Goats? Oh, that's great. I'm so sad to see only a fourth of us raise our hands. Uh, but luckily, we live in the digital age. Not right now. I see phones coming out. Pause it. This afternoon, go to the Google and find that song. It's a fun song. But I remember being profoundly impacted by it as a zealous 15-year-old trying to figure out what it means to be faithful to Jesus. This song ended up becoming, I didn't realize it at the time, very foundational for the construction of my own value system. And uh, even though there's some silliness and some scariness to it, it's, it's a good song. You should go out and, and have a listen to it. Uh, my favorite part is when the goats are 
poking each other in the ribs saying, somebody needs to go out and get the Lord a hamburger. He's clearly hungry. And so anyway, that's, that's enough of the preview that I'll give you. Go and listen. To, in context, it works. Okay, Matthew 25. This is uh, verses 31 through 46. Now, I want to admit there is a way that we could talk about this verse this morning that would be a little bit more faithfully exegetical and theological because there, I think there are a lot of heavy theological implications, particularly in the way Jesus is articulating his understanding of, of, of um, the, a season of apocalypse and so forth. But we're not gonna, I'm, I'm sorry if that's kind of the thing that kind of puts the, uh, the fuel in your engine, we're not going to do that this morning, and I, and I acknowledge that that would be a legitimate way of doing this, but we're going to do it just a little bit different, primarily trying to let it just kind of come to the surface, this vision of what compassion looks like. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of of the world for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat I was thirsty you gave me something to drink I was a stranger and you took me in I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I, I was in prison, and you visited me. The righteous will answer him. Now, this is a part of the passage we quickly overlook, but I want you to put a pin in this because this statement really is powerful. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one, the least of these, my brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now, I don't know about you, but immediately I'm offended by this. For one thing, this is a terrible evangelical gospel appeal. I mean, it's awful. Jesus gets an F here because there's no mention on aligning their beliefs to Christian doctrine. 
There's no mention of, well, you have to believe this theory of salvation that works A, B, C, and if you do that, then you'll inherit the kingdom. None of that is in there. There is no talk of the sheep making Jesus their personal Lord and Savior. None of this. Now, already, please hang on the emails. I am not saying that those things are not important and they're not part of the conversation. I am just saying that in this particular text, this is, none of these things are emphasized. And in fact, for those of us who grew up thinking that works somehow is in opposition to the gospel, that if you acknowledge the call to righteous works, then you're automatically a legalist who isn't trusting the grace of God, this is even more offensive to us because what he says is your salvation was determined by what you did or what you chose to not do. Let's read the second half. Then he will also say to those on the left, I know all you right-leaning Republicans are loving this uh, analogy here, but please lift it, you're thinking up a little higher. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. I appreciate that you were afraid of enabling me. No, I'm sorry, that I added that. That wasn't in there. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. They too will answer, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty? or a stranger, or without clothes, or sick, or in prison, and not help you. Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away in eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, just because a text of scripture doesn't articulate everything about our faith doesn't mean it's dismissive of the things it's not referring to. It just means it's not referring to them. So I want you to feel the tension of the way Jesus emphasizes works of compassion, but at the same time, I don't think that works of compassion and healthy beliefs that aren't toxic are exclusive to one another. I actually think they complement one another. My point is simply this. All of our believing and affirming of our beliefs are intended to deposit seeds of truth that ought to bear particular fruit in our lives. And if that fruit is not being born, it behooves us to go on a journey before the Holy Spirit and to inquire what might be going on beneath the surface that might be causing that. I do believe it matters what you believe about Jesus. I do believe it matters what you believe about forgiveness. I do believe it matters what you believe about mercy and God's love. It's just that at the end of the day, 
It is not affirming those beliefs that saves us. It's when those beliefs recreate our character and our character displays a different kind of behavior. Not behavior modification covering up the whole, the toxic character, but letting the gospel go deep, heal us of our toxic nature so that we can be a healing presence for people so that then the behavior that flows comes from our healing and our wholeness, not because we're striving to become better than what we think we are. That motive is really critical for longevity in acts of compassion. Otherwise, your acts of compassion will have responses attached to it and you'll start keeping score of how much compassion is going out and how much response is coming in. Well, that's why we need this particular passage of scripture. There are so many points of discussions in this passage. As we said uh, just a few minutes ago, you may, some people focus on what it might mean, what it might be teaching about the end of days or the end times. Uh, some people may be interested in it for what it might seem to be communicating about some kind of scene of final judgment before God. Some people might even want to have a debate, a legitimate theological debate on the nature of salvation. Which is it? Is it faith alone or is it uh, the works that we see manifested? And they could have a fun conversation about that. Um, or maybe we want to concentrate our discussion on what exactly is the nature of the least of these. Uh, I, I am always a little suspect when smart people take a passage of Scripture and immediately start building a case as to why it's not necessary for us to obey it. And so that's why I added that bit, because there's a big nature on, well, we need to find out who the least of these are, because... Once we find that out, we just got to serve them and those outside of that, we don't need to worry about those. I really don't think that Jesus' point here is to try to put boundaries on as little compassion as, as we can get by with. I, I think that what he's doing is just the opposite here. He is expanding our vision of who are, ought to be considered recipients of our acts of compassion. Our focus this morning is simply on this. What does this text reveal about the nature of God, the people of God, and the mission of the church? What does this text reveal about the nature of God, about the people of God, and about the, 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 um, the, 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 uh, the nature of the mission of the church? So let's start with observing just the text itself. There are six behaviors that are highlighted in Jesus's words here. Uh, and they're highlighted because one group actually pursued these six actions and one group neglected to pursue these six actions. And these actions are listed as feeding the hungry, giving water to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, clothing the naked, visiting the sick, and visiting those in prison. That, uh, well, what is actually being highlighted here is that these are not social programs to increase comfort. These acts of compassion literally are do or die kinds of acts of compassion. It, it is there are people that they, you will die without access to water. You will die without access to food. If you go without access to protection over your body, the elements will destroy your life. So, so these are acts of compassion, meeting people at their most basic needs, regardless of why they're in that situation. It is still a calling to meet those needs as we see it 
uh, presented before us. And even the idea of visiting those in prison, this is not, you know, I mean, look, all I know about prison, I know from watching crime dramas on TV. So I'm guessing I know nothing about prison. Um, I know a lot of thoughts in my head. Maybe I should have, for those of the fans of The Office, maybe I should have done a little prison mic routine this morning. Uh, that would have been appropriate here. Um, but what, I, what I've learned in studying the context of those prisons is that those prisons didn't operate with three square meals a day. Uh, your survival was contingent in some part on the people outside of the prison that were willing to support you and bring you food to sustain you while you were in, uh, in prison serving your time. So my point is, is that this isn't just a visitation so that someone didn't feel lonely. This is recognizing there's a real human life or death need here that we need to be part of as those who are the sheep of Jesus Christ. So when we look at these, what kind of actions are these? Every single one of these are acts of compassion. Now, one of the things we don't wanna do is misuse the scripture and say, okay, <laughs> okay, there's six things that we need to do to make God happy. Okay, this is not a comprehensive list. Jesus is illustrating the overall flavor and atmosphere of our lives. This is not a comp comprehensive list. The point is a description of the kinds of actions that characterize the people of God. In other words, the spirit of this passage can be contextualized in any culture and in any situation because it's more about that there's a need and there's a willingness to respond to that need. Um, not that it just has to be one of these six needs. These works are not an exhaustive list. Rather, they represent the fruit of those who simply follow Jesus by serving others. Let's take a moment and put these actions under a microscope this morning. These acts of compassion that I want you to see, they are not spectacular. And they're fairly non-religious. Like there wasn't, it doesn't sound like there was a campaign where a team got together and said, hey, I know how we can get more people in the church. There's a lot of people who don't have clothes. If we give them clothes and tell them that they can, and put a sticker on them that says, this clothing was brought to you by Christ Community Church, they might wanna to come to our church. You know, this is kind of the way the church responds to need. We tend to see human need as opportunities to grow our organizations. And I think that attitude is the first place we've gotta repent. Because God is not calling us to the manipulate convert business. He's calling us to be manifestations of the tangible grace and mercy of God to anyone, regardless of whether or not they find themselves a part of our community or even part of our religion. These acts of compassion are not primarily religious actions. These acts of compassion can be done by anyone, regardless of their spiritual maturity, their giftedness, or even their financial prosperity. You know, you don't have to have all your cussing and beer drinking in order in order to become a compassionate person is my point. Now, I'm not saying you should cuss and drink beer. Don't, don't tweet that, whoever's about to tweet it. Um, hashtag gospel free living or whatever. Um, I, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, you don't have to have all your ducks in a row until where you feel worthy based on all of your behavioral practice in order to be used by God powerfully as a vessel of mercy and compassion. 
And in fact, sometimes when you're in your most broken season is when you are most acutely aware of the power of mercy and compassion. Sometimes when you're in a broken season, you may be better equipped than someone who is not in a broken season, but that awareness of brokenness has been replaced by a little bit of arrogance and judgment. That actually is, that, that is not as conducive to a ministry of compassion as someone who is broken and aware of how they're being sustained by mercy and compassion, and therefore they let it flow th- into their lives and through their lives. These, these acts of compassion are not commended by any consideration of their result. They are commended simply because they are done. There's no postscript to the story where they got together and found out who got most of the proselyte victims from the in, compassion endeavors. You know, you get two, two, seven, you got seven? All right. You're, you're the Jesus follower of the week. You know, none of that is in there. They are commended not because we have testimonies that they made someone follow the faith or that they made radical differences. We're not told that someone visited in prison learned their lesson because of the compassion. Therefore, they got out and they were redeemed and they never went back to prison again. And then they made a movie about it that made lots of money and got Will Smith another Oscar. That, that, that none of that is going on here. It, we don't know what happened to them. It could be that someone experienced that compassion, were released from prison and continued down the path they were on and found themselves in prison again, and yet a recipient once again of a follower of Jesus' compassion. Now, I'm not saying that's a simple conversation and that it's never a place to talk about that. I, I am not saying that. We are called to shine the light of the gospel and to call those who are not following Jesus to invite them to follow Jesus. I'm not a, I am for that 100%. I am just saying that our acts of compassion don't have to be arrested by that motive alone. They are just commended by Christ simply because they are done. These acts of compassion are not commended or rejected based on the worthiness of those receiving them. It's not a question about whether hungry and thirsty, naked and a stranger, or sick in a prison. Well, if they'd have just made better choices. So, I want you to show compassion to those who are in bad situations regardless of the good choices they made. By and large, that's not the agenda for a prison ministry. It is not about their worthiness. It is about how the spirit responds in the face of human brokenness for whatever reason brought them to that place of brokenness. These acts of compassion are not done by programming or planning which again, I am not saying is wrong, but I'm just pointing out in the text, it doesn't appear that this was done from programming and planning. They're done because there is a temporary need that must be met. What I'm trying to do is build a case of how easy it is to be faithful to Jesus in the face of your fellow human brother or sister. It is not that complicated, it is not that hard. You don't have to be smart, you don't have to have planned, you don't have to have a follow-up plan to make sure they're at church the next Sunday. You simply have to be another human that recognizes what it's like to experience mercy and grace and be willing to step in and be that for someone else. These acts are not about addressing issues, they're simply responding to need. And most of them are needs that are temporary and ongoing. 
Now, I don't want to keep doing this all morning long, but I just want to emphasize, I am not saying that there's never a place to have a systemic issue-oriented conversation. There is a place to have that, but I am just saying that our showing mercy is not contingent upon figuring out those higher ideas about compassion. They're not about issues, they're just responding to a need, and it's not about fixing the need. The need might still be there tomorrow and probably will still be there tomorrow. If not for them, then for someone else. These acts are more than works. They are natural characteristics of those who are walking in the Spirit. The, if these actions are not a part of the life of Artie Favre, then Artie's response is not to try harder or to do more or to strive for more di discipline. Artie Favre's response has to be to draw near to God and say, Lord, change my heart and move my hand. That's it. This is not insights about the person sitting next to me. This is not me being cranky because I feel like someone might not be doing as much of me, which I hear all of those motives in these conversations that Christians have. This is simply about, and this isn't about me feeling guilty that I'm not doing enough. It is, Lord, change my heart and move my hand. I will respond when you open my eyes. And I may not change the world, but I might change a moment for someone. And changing that moment is enough for me. Because changing that moment, a moment in your hands is an eternal moment, not a temporary moment. And so I will content myself with that. So what does it mean for the mission of CCC? It means this, the way we are taking our instruction from this text. We will compassionately proclaim the gospel in word and deed, both locally and globally. I am not saying that we are living this vision perfectly. I am saying this is the hope that is on my heart. And if that hope drops down in your heart and you see something that we're neglecting and the Spirit is calling you to be the answer to our community's neglect, I want to sit down and talk with you and find out how we can empower you to respond in the way that the Spirit is calling you. That may or may not lead to a programmatic change, but that is where we start. We'll seek to be led by the Spirit and respond when He presents us with need and extends to us an invitation to respond. Whenever possible, we will seek to respond first relationally, then programmatically, because we believe that the gospel doesn't just put food in our bellies, it restores our dignity as human members of a human society. And again, I take that cue from the multiple times we walk through the book of Luke, and Jesus didn't just heal people, he restored them to their community. Because the healing wasn't just, their, just about their physical wholeness, but it was about removing the stigma that their condition created that made them outcast within their community. So what Jesus is doing with his follow-up conversations is saying, I'm not just interested in restoring your health, I want to restore you to your connection to your community. And so we recognize that part of the gospel call is to recognize and affirm the human dignity of everyone because they've simply been made in the image of God. And even though they may not see it, we are called to be people that learn how to see it for them. That's what we do. So the focus of this ministry, as I said, then won't be issues, but people. In the context of ministry to people, look, if love requires us to address an issue, we will certainly do that. 
But our motive in doing so isn't to win theological or political or ethical arguments. Our motive will be our desire to be faithful to Jesus and to minister to those to whom we have been sent. That's the goal, our desire, our longing. The reason why it is so important that as members of this community, we give ourselves over to our own personal process of healing and restoration is that that's the only way that we can be a safe place for God to send us more broken, wounded people. Because if we remain wounded and try to help the wounded, we will do damage. The goal is not for us to invite people into a lifestyle that we are not pursuing ourselves. That's why your first obligation to be a faithful minister of Christ is to make sure you let him love you. Not for any service that you have to offer, but from the revelation you belong to him. And in that belonging, he wraps his love around you and within you. And as we allow that to happen, this is why we can say we're not perfect. And this is why we don't say around here, we're not perfect, just forgiven. We are forgiven first and foremost, but it's so that we can be made whole. Not to perpetuate our toxicity in a spiritual environment because we can get away with it because churches are supposed to be nice to people. I'm not interested in a nice place that's unsafe. Nice on the surface, but it's unsafe for the broken. Our goal, our desire, is that we are ready and willing and anxious and longing for the Lord to bring the broken among us so that we can walk with them and see them restored and see them experience the same restoration and redemption that has touched our own lives. And the way we do that is with a Jesus-informed model of compassion. Our acts of compassion are not for the purpose of being a Trojan horse in hopes of getting converts to join our church. Now, if you need to go to the bathroom or you're getting alerts on your phone, hang with me just a few minutes because it might make the difference between whether or not you leave here with us as friends or not. Okay? I, I am not saying that I don't care about the church grown. But I am saying it becomes a mixed ambitious motive if I attach my desire to grow the church to my acts of compassion toward other people. Now I'm not serving them, I am using them. And we don't want to use them, we want to be present to serve them. So our acts of compassion are not to be a Trojan horse in hopes of getting converts to join our church. However, Jesus said that when people see our good works, they will glorify our Father in heaven. Our goal is that others would see our good works as a tangible, as tangible expressions of the Father's love. And when that happens, if it awakens in them a desire to live a life of reconciled relationship with God and to live from an awareness of Christ within as the hope of glory, then we most certainly want to be prepared to welcome them in so that we can join them on their journey. So 100%, we want God to add to our numbers. We just don't want our compassion to be tainted with ambition for more numbers in the seats. We wanna, be, we wanna acknowledge that that can become a, a temptation, and maybe some of us want to acknowledge 
We've participated in that in the past. To, my, to whatever extent I might come across as challenging that, it's only an echo of challenging what was in my own heart because I was religiously ambitious to see numbers increase regardless of the state or the condition of the people that were filling up those seats. And I don't wanna be participating in that. I don't wanna evangelize in order to report the numbers. I wanna bear witness to the grace of God and see people transformed by extangible expressions of his mercy. That's what I wanna, and, and if in doing that, they decide to go to the Baptist church, that is fine with me. I don't care because I still got to be there at that moment and be, and be used as a tangible expression of the mercy of God in their life. And so that is what we were give ourselves to. But, but what we do know is this, they may not all wanna join our community, but some will. And we want to embrace them and we will wanna walk with them wherever they may be beginning to start that journey. And trust that just as the Holy Spirit has been faithful with us in our imperfections, he will do the same with them. Will that be chaos? Yeah, probably. But you don't get to see the Lord's mercy and yes, unless you hang out with the undeserving. You don't get to see God's work of healing unless you hang out with the sick and the wounded. You don't get to see the miracle of reconciliation unless you hang out with the people that make it hard for anybody to be reconciled to them. These are the only contexts in which we get to see these miracles that we pray for. All along, we've been thinking that we were praying that we could stay in safety and watch God do miraculous stuff out here. But all the while, every prayer of miracle, the Spirit is beckoning us. All right, you come be the touching point of that miracle for them. You get to be the access point. So then the question is, what can you do as the worship team comes forward? Well, as we approach the Lord's table in communion together this morning, and as you go back to your seat or kneel up here or find a corner somewhere to pray, Ask God to open your eyes to give you the grace to respond to what you see. I promise you, if part of your thinking is, where do I begin? You're already there. It's just that our lives are so fast-paced that we don't have time to see what's right in front of us. So we ask God to make us aware. And then you respond, you get involved as you become aware and your heart is moved. And here's what I can promise you. If you practice compassion, it does get easier. And pretty soon, you're just living compassion without any conscious thought of having to practice it. Because in the Spirit's kindness, it will take over the totality of who you are. Now, that's what you can do. Let us all stand, approach the Lord's table, and consider what will we do. You will have an opportunity to show compassion, I'm guessing, within the first hour or two of leaving here this morning. Some of us will be quicker before that.
Most of us don't practice compassion not because we don't want to become compassionate people. And it's not because we're hard-hearted and uncaring. It's because we're too busy to think about it. So let's readjust. Let the Spirit change that paradigm. Let us see. Let us respond.